Uh, turning your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, um, if you uh, don't get or didn't read uh, the email, um, this may come as a surprise. I'm skipping ahead, um, and that is all explained in the church email. Um, we'll come back to the middle part of 12, uh, Lord willing, next week. However, uh, this morning, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, and we will read through the end of the chapter. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only that earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, we pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would be at work. Uh, use this word to conform us uh, more and more into the image of Christ, for we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. So, I, you know, I, I have to be careful sometimes because I, um, when you use illustration, sometimes people get nervous that I'm, I'm calling out individual people or I'm actually trying to refer to. I promise. I promise. But if you'll humor me, uh, I, I trust all our cell phones are off. But see, um, pretend with me for a second that, that you got a phone call right here, right now. See, see, that's see, that's the problem, right? As soon as you say that, everybody goes, I think mine's off. Like literally half the room is going, I better double check. I promise that was not my point. I, I just needed the illustration. But let's assume you get a call right now. And, and the person on the other side asks, um, sort of standard, fair questions. Hey, where are you? What are you doing right now? How would you answer that question? My guess is most of us, the, the, the thing right off the bat without thinking hard would be, well, I'm at church. Okay, fair enough. But you've heard me sort of picket that before. Uh, the church isn't a building, it's people. 
Um, you could say, well, I'm at, I'm at Grace Covenant or I'm at 1432 Freeman Avenue. Well, that's, what, that's, that's where Google Maps would take you. How many of you would actually answer, well, I'm, I'm currently on a mountain with some friends, many of whom I cannot see and have never actually met? Is that the answer you would give? See, look at a topographical map of Athens. You would not give that answer. Right? That's not, we're just far enough away from, I'm on a mountain being a sort of physical, tangible, in our minds, reasonable answer. But what's the answer the writer of Hebrews gives us? Because the writer of Hebrews actually answers for us in this passage, where are you? What are you doing right now? Notice the way he gives this answer. The the writer reaches back in the first several verses to the giving of the law in Exodus 19 and 20, which we saw however many months ago now um, in our series in Exodus. And to Deuteronomy 4, which is sort of a retelling of those events. And when God gave the law, when he gave the Ten Commandments, when he came down and and met with Israel on Mount Sinai, technically he was meeting with Moses, the mediator, because Israel, as the nation, as the people, wasn't allowed on the mountain. They weren't even allowed to, to touch the mountain. There was lightning and thunder and shaking and cloud and darkness and and noise and and all those things that honestly if we're smart kind of scare us right it's that kind of a a sight have you ever noticed kids are never scared of the light but but they're scared of the dark sometimes i gotta have a night light because i don't I'm, i'm afraid of the dark well it was the darkness that covered the cloud it was shaking and loud and 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 lightning and thunder all those things that tend to frighten us and the command was given i mean if so much as a i don't know a wild boar wanders up onto the mountain and makes any contact with it at all you have to kill it you have to stone it It, it's got to be put to death why all the loud shaking stuff why the volume why the darkness why the the cloud and scary well, because the reality is at Mount Sinai, a holy God had come down to meet with sinful, rebellious people. And, and when he came down, and since that mountain became his temporary dwelling place, it became holy earth. So that those sinful people at the bottom had to stay away, had to not be allowed to touch that mountain. Now, keep in mind, that was the pinnacle. Okay, pun intended probably. But that was the pinnacle. In the, in the minds of Jewish people, that was the pinnacle of sort of Old Testament covenant. Old Testament covenant relationship. And remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish converts to Christianity. Men and women, boys and girls, raised in... Um, as in the Jewish faith, raised as Jews who have come to saving faith in Christ. And, and the reality is they're in danger of, of forsaking it all to return to Judaism. And so this is their background. This is their history. And in their minds, 
as Jewish people, particularly in the first century, this Mount Sinai, this law giving was the, the pinnacle of old covenant meetings. These Israelites had been brought out of, of slavery in Egypt and God had come down to meet with them there on the mountain, gave them the Ten Commandments and the instructions for building the tabernacle and instructions for the priesthood and all of those sorts of things. And so the original audience would have seen that moment, that day, that mountain as as the pinnacle of old covenant meetings, God meeting with his people as sort of the highlight of religious history, if you will. But one of the things that we've seen over and over and over again throughout Hebrews has been the way the person and work of Christ changes things. How the, the birth, life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus inaugurates, introduces a, a new covenant reality. Did you notice verse 18? You have not come to that mountain. But you have come instead, verse 22, to Mount Zion. You're not on Mount Sinai. You're not on the, the law, the shaking, the darkness, the thunder. You're not on that mountain. You're on a different mountain. You have instead come to Mount Sinai. The original audience and you and I are gathered at a different mountain. In fact, this was part of the context of our call to worship from John 4 just a few minutes ago. Jesus met with the woman at the well and she said, hey, Jesus, I got a question for you. Uh, our people say worship at this mountain. Your people say worship at that mountain. Which mountain's right? Do you remember his answer? Well, neither. The day is coming, in fact, is now here when we worship in spirit and truth. We're not limited to a particular place. 1432 Freeman Avenue serves us well because it gives us a place to meet. But it's no more special than 1452 Freeman Avenue. That, that's next door for in case you start to get, trying to, what is he talking about? At least in and of itself. But the writer of Hebrews says you actually are on a mountain. Now, to be fair, Jerusalem is actually on a plateau. Um, but he uses Mount Zion and he specifically says the heavenly Jerusalem. He's not talking about physical, earthly Jerusalem, like pull it up on Google Maps and say, hey, I need flights to Jerusalem. This is a different sort of uh, a different place. It's a the heavenly Jerusalem. It's in fact, for that matter, much of what you read of Zion in the Old Testament isn't even talking about physical Jerusalem either. It's talking about the greater Zion, the true Zion, the eternal heavenly Zion. But notice who's in this meeting. But you have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion, which means you and I are actually on a mountain. But who else is here? Well, innumerable angels in festal gathering. They're dressed for a celebration. 
You and I are meeting with um, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. That word assembly, by the way, is the Greek word ekklesia, which is church. Ecclesia, if you're a covenant student. So there's this picture that that you and I, in a, in a spiritual sense, are actually meeting with the very people named by name in chapter 11. We're actually gathered with them on a mountain. With those Old Covenant saints, those Old Testament saints, anticipating the coming of the Messiah, with the angels, we are actually meeting with them in this spiritual sense. And notice verse 24, we've come to Jesus. He is there. He is in that meeting. He's the mediator of the new covenant. Is that the answer you would have given? Hey, where are you? What are you doing? Well, I'm on a mountain. Apparently Abraham and Isaac are here. Apparently there's a bunch of angels here. I'm, I'm, I'm in the heavenly Jerusalem. I'm, I'm at Mount Zion. Where are you? you? You should be here. You know, this has practical implications for us, doesn't it? I mean, you think about all the things we do that we think of as, I don't know, hyper-special um, that require planning and preparation. I mean, so much so that we'll actually prepare the day before. We'll, we'll do things to make sure we're ready and that, that the travel goes smoothly, that, that, that we're, we're ready for whatever event. We're, we're going to meet with, I don't know, the President of the United States or with King Charles. And, and, and you do things to sort of make sure you're prepared for that. How much more if we're meeting in the heavenly Jerusalem, the, the true Mount Zion with Christ and the saints and innumerable angels. This has recognizing where we are and who we are with has practical implications for us. We should come with all the more anticipation and delight and preparation and expectation as we gather at Mount Zion with God's people on the Lord's Day. We see the, the place of the new covenant gathering. I think I forgot to say that at the beginning. That was that point. We also see the permanence of the new covenant gathering. You ever have... You ever have... You ever have deep philosophical moments... You're sitting alone with a cup of coffee and your brain wanders into, I wonder if I'm real or if I'm part of somebody's dream. You know, you do those, those sort of almost Plato-like sort of philosophical questions. You know, Chicago asked, does anybody really know what time it is? Does anybody really care? I mean, we could sort of, does anybody know what reality is? Does anybody really care? Like, how do I know what's real? How do I know what's really real? Where is, what is reality anyway? We do these sort of 
deep philosophical thoughts when we have a little too much spare time on our hands. Inevitably, I'm pretty sure most of us answer with things like real. You know, this is what we do, right? We have we have two choices in our minds. We have two choices. We have real and we have imaginary. And so real is the stuff that I can touch and see and smell and taste and it's physical and I can see it and it's right here. And I know that there's chairs and tables and books and people in this room. And this is real because if I couldn't see it, then that would have to be imaginary. Like that's the dichotomy we have in our minds. We have that the only choices for us are either real or imaginary. And the real is the things you can touch. But that's not the way God sees it. You're not limited to real or imaginary. You actually have another option. Look at verses 25 to 27. The writer recognizes that there is another shaking coming. Yes, Mount Sinai shook. That's not the only time that God's going to shake the earth. In fact, he, that's where he grabs hold of Haggai 2. It's why we read Haggai 2 in just a few minutes ago. So in Exodus 19 and 20, the mountain shook at the giving of the law. In Haggai 2, the people have returned from exile in Babylon. They're rebuilding the temple and it looks terrible. The thing Solomon built was huge. It was glorious. This, I mean... You know, marble and gold versus toothpicks. This is, this is a miserable excuse for a temple in Haggai's day. And God promises, look, there's a day coming when I'm going to shake heaven and earth itself. And the glory of the next temple is going to be greater than the one Solomon built. Now, it would be really tempting to think, well, huh, that's funny. Because there's actually a Roman governor that helps build the temple and make it better and bigger and fancier. That's not what Haggai was talking about. Because the writer of Hebrews sees it still in his future. And he is probably less than 10 years from the destruction of that one. He's looking ahead to a different temple, a different shaking of heaven and earth. And notice what happens in that shaking. Some stuff gets destroyed. Some stuff ceases to exist. Some stuff goes away. You, you're, you're panning for gold. You have a sieve. You run it through some water. You shake it. The stuff that's real small and fine sort of falls through. The stuff that's bigger stays. And that's the stuff that's kind of weighty. That's kind of the image here. Except that what stays is the stuff you can't see. He shakes heaven and earth so that the things that are shaken, verse 27, that is, the things that have been made are going to be removed so that the things that can't be shaken remain. Well, what can you not shake? The stuff that's not tangible. We think 
real or imaginary? What if there's real and there's actually real? Really real? Like, what if there's real but not permanent? And there's real but eternal? That's the picture here. In the last days when Christ returns, heaven and earth shake and the visible, tangible things, the things you call real, are going to be gone. They're going to disappear. They're going to be removed. And what remains is things that cannot be shaken. Mount Sinai, the old covenant mountain, it's not going to last. Mount Zion is eternal. It's permanent. Because it's not physical. It's not tangible. But that doesn't mean it's not real. In fact, it's more real. It's the really real. The new covenant gathering at Mount Zion is the real reality. But I can't see it. I can't touch it. How do I know? It's what Scripture tells us. Just because we can't see it doesn't make it imaginary. That's our fault, not its fault. But being tangible doesn't make it true reality either. This passage says that the things that you call the real world when Jesus returns will pass away and be replaced by the things you can't see. In fact, look back, turn probably just a page back to chapter 10. Notice um, verse 34 in, in Hebrews 10, 34, the writer says, look, you had compassion on those in prison, in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why? Because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Someone comes along and steals your computer. They steal your phone. They steal your stuff. They steal the things that you think are most precious. And you can say, well, it's not real anyway. Because it's not going to last. It's not the thing that's not going to be shaken. Because they can't take the permanent, lasting reality away from you. You can endure the, the plundering of your possessions. Why? Because those possessions are only good for this world. And the church is the beachhead of the world to come that has already invaded this one. Why hang on to the things of this world at all costs when the things of the next world are infinitely more valuable? That's what Jesus teaches us on the Sermon on the Mount. We even use it as a, a bit of our confession of sin. I mean, he says later in the Sermon on the Mount, don't, don't, don't store up treasures here. Right? Store up your treasures in heaven because that's a permanent, lasting kingdom. That's part of what we portray when we give our tithes and offerings. We're saying the things of this world are only so precious and less precious than the things of the world to come. The new covenant gathering is a, the permanent, is the permanent reality. We see the, the place of the new covenant gathering, the permanence of the new covenant gathering, and finally the purpose of the new covenant gathering. 
because we gather at Mount Zion and not Mount Sinai, because we've received a kingdom that's permanent, that cannot be shaken, that is the most really reality we can know, the writer gives us a therefore, verse 28. We have something to do in response to what God has given us in this new covenant. Notice verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that can't be shaken. Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. There are words in that verse that you and I think can't possibly belong in the new covenant reality. God is a consuming fire. I get it. That's that's Mount Sinai. That makes sense. But to write that in the New Testament doesn't make sense at all. To say that that there is acceptable worship suggests that there's unacceptable worship. That sounds like the God of the Old Testament, not the God of the New Testament. And yet, that's exactly what the writer writes. I mean, it's... We sort of feel like, look, as long as I'm worshiping God, I can do what I want. As long as we're worshiping God together, how we do it. I mean, who's going to tell us there's an acceptable and, and therefore an unacceptable way of worshiping him? But notice the writer of Hebrews says, let us in light of what he has given us, let us offer him worship that is acceptable, that is appropriate to uh, what he has commanded us. And that's exactly what Jesus said in John chapter 4. We're to worship God in spirit and truth. And that spirit could be, could be the Holy Spirit. It could be the right attitude. And here's the thing. The reality is at some level, worshiping God in spirit and truth, spirit at some level is up to you. Truth is up to us. And that's part of the picture here. And so he calls us to worship in spirit and truth, to worship according to his commands. But he also calls us to worship in that way with reverence and awe, with appropriate fear and respect for our holy God, but with joyful amazement that he would welcome us into his presence. We're grateful for his grace and mercy to us, despite the fact that we are still sinners and he is still holy. Notice the place we gather changes. The people we gather with changes we now gather at a a permanent place not one that's impermanent not one that's going to disappear but the one we worship hasn't changed at all so much so that the writer of hebrews would write verse 29 for our god is a consuming fire that's not his language he stole it he took it from moses Moses writes exactly that in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 24. In Deuteronomy 4, uh, Moses recounts the giving of the law and then goes into a warning against idolatry and then reminds the Israelites that our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God, he writes. 
See, we expect that for the God of Sinai. We expect that that's a different God and this one is a a new God, some sort of new rendition of who God is. That was sort of God 1.0, law-shaking, scary, oppressive. But new covenant is God 2.0 and he's loving and kind and, and, you know, it's not that big a deal. But the writer of Hebrews says he's still the infinite, holy God. We're still unworthy of his grace. And yet we still gather to worship him. God doesn't change. The one whom we worship hasn't changed at all. He's the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. He's still the same holy, holy, holy God that Isaiah saw in Isaiah 6 with surrounded by angels whose robe fills the temple. And so how then can we approach such a God? Well, he tells us in verse 25, through Jesus. Moses, the mediator of the old covenant, was rejected to their peril, to their death even. Reject the mediator of the new covenant, verse 25, who is Jesus himself, who speaks by his word and by his blood. What does the blood of Abel say? Vengeance. Get revenge. The blood of Abel is the man in black. He's been in the revenge business. The blood of Jesus says there's forgiveness, there's grace. And so we come with reverence and awe. We come with reverence because God is holy. We come with awe because God has accepted you. And that should amaze us. Why has he accepted you? It's not because of you. It's because of the perfect sacrifice. His perfect son. The perfect mediator. Because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I trust you remember uh, the great scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when... The children learn about Aslan for the first time. They're hanging out in the home of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. They learn that there's a lion on the loose in Narnia. And Susan says, is he quite safe? I should feel, and the quotes, whatever. I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver goes, oh girl. That's not how he said it, but you don't even know. Like, Anyone who can meet Aslan without his knees knocking is either braver than most or else just silly. To which Lucy said, he isn't safe then. Mr. Beaver said, oh dearie. He loved British. Oh dearie. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. That's this passage. This passage reminds you, you have gathered on a mountain to worship a God who is not safe, but who is good. May that truth, may that reality, may that real reality more greatly impact 
not just how we worship here and now or any given particular Sunday, but even how we live to his honor and glory, because that is your hope. Would you pray with me? Our God and our King, we thank you that you are not safe. That our, holy, our sinfulness in the presence of your holiness is detrimental to us. But that you're good. And we have a mediator. Whose word says that if we trust in him, he says to you, these are mine. They're forgiven. I shed my blood for them. Father, we thank you that that even his life, death, burial, resurrection wasn't to strong arm you into loving us, but was a response in itself to your love. Would you grant us the grace to recognize that when we gather as your people, we gather on a holy mountain. Spiritually with the saints, with innumerable angels, to meet with Jesus. May that be our answer the next time we get that call. Hey, where are you? What are you doing? I'm on a mountain with my people and my Redeemer and my King. Would you so do that to the honor of and glory of Christ and for our good? We ask it in his name. Amen.